Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with my friend, Stephen Pierce, of the project Gold Dust, and also of Kindling and Ampere. We talked about Richard and Linda Thompson's 1974 album, I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, and go deep into their other material like Pour Down Like Silver, Hokey Pokey, and much more. We also discussed the English folk scene and its connections to things like Grateful Dead. Had a lot of fun catching up. Steven self-released his debut self-titled Gold Dust album last year, so check that out if you missed it. Also, don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at spinningoutpod. If you want to be really nice, follow me on Twitter at otherjrobbins. I would appreciate that. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, and please think about subscribing to the Patreon. I'll say it again. Every little bit helps and keeps us going. Okay, let's chat with Steven. Hey, Steven, how's it going? going well thanks how are you good good so you pushed it back on me and now i have to say what i've been up to i know i know well you know <laughs> if you ask a question um then i'm gonna answer with a question um <laughs> that, that i think that exudes confidence <laughs> it's yeah. like what everyone's least favorite boss or least favorite teacher does right yeah i actually i feel like i do it a lot of times at work because there's not always an easy answer it's like what do you think the color of this poster is and then i'm like what color do you think it is because <laughs> it's like i don't know but okay so we're not talking about any of that today no we are talking about richard and linda thompson sure uh, it is their second album from 1974 well their first um it's uh, their okay yes their yeah, first yeah. uh he had a solo record before yes. this that was yep. not incredibly well received and then uh <laughs> i want to see the bright lights tonight yes so um yeah so i did the, my little research on that so um so i guess after he left fairport convention he did a solo record didn't go that great and he said hey linda what do you got going on and they did this record so that's where we're at you know, so supposedly Henry the Human Fly, his first record, um, was I've I've read from a couple of sources the worst selling album on its label to that point. Wow! <laughs> so it's like the Kindling LP of. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's true, but um, uh, you that's... know who knows? Who knows? It's a good thing you're telling yourself. <laughs> it's that. it's what I assume. Yeah, <laughs> happens yeah. whenever I put out a record. Is come the the new Henry the Human Fly. <laughs> and how many people do you think get that reference? Oh, I mean that's how little it sold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there's some good okay. songs on it though. It's it's not a bad record. So okay, so there's there's so much I want to get into <laughs> that mm -hmm. we we're gonna get into. But this record came out April thirtieth, nineteen seventy four. I believe the story with it is they recorded it in seventy three. And yep. then there was a vinyl shortage, which is laughable now. Yeah, very, very familiar. <laughs> but I, I still feel like that was like, okay, so back in this time frame, it felt like bands recorded records and then they were out like three weeks later. Well, exactly. You know, you hear about, um, I, I just watched the Get Back 
um, documentary series. And yeah. like, you know, some of the stuff in there about how, okay, well, we'll, we'll record it in, you know, X month. And then one month later, we'll have the acetates and it'll be out. Like that's, I don't know. It's absolutely wild to me. I feel like the, the only world I've known is the one where, you know, you're waiting, waiting and waiting for pressing plants to, to get back to you. And we thought it was bad like 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what? I mean, everyone was putting out vinyl back in this time frame, so I don't understand it, but I guess maybe the, but I guess less people, I, I don't know. That's the hard thing. It's like, it feels like more people would have been putting out vinyl, but I guess overall less people were in bands. Maybe. I, I don't know what it what, is. In the, in the early mid seventies. Yeah. 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 Well, something that I've read about what, what caused their delay in particular was, I guess there was an oil crisis then. No. So yeah. like, you know, just to underscore how like absolutely irresponsible it is for us to be putting out vinyl. Um, yeah. Like, you know, you need petroleum products to, to make vinyl. And I guess they were far enough down on the Island Records totem pole that, you know, you, you hear about all the incredible records that came out like 71, 72, 73, right? Mm-hmm. I guess they weren't, you know, in that echelon of like, you know, it's not like it was like Goat's Head Soup or something where it was like, all right, Stone's got a new one, fucking push that through. Yeah. You know, buy yeah. buy ten barrels of oil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's worth it for however much oil we need to like find. Somewhere. Sure, but, but you you imagine on the heels of Henry the Human Fly, and you know, I guess the year or so they spent just playing, you know, English folk clubs, which sounds like a pretty incredible thing. Um, you know, did you read any, anything about any of that when you were looking into to all this, like mm. the weird? No. you know communal socialist world of uh english folk clubs no so- I, a lot of what i looked at because um just for the listener to know we're technically tricking you we're really talking about three records um in mm-hmm. a sense really two so we're kind of talking about pour down like silver and mm-hmm. uh but we're also maybe going to talk about hokey pokey but i guess <laughs> let's just say we're talking about richard and linda thompson overall So with that said, I wrote down mostly information about this specific record. Right. Um, So to answer your question, I did not I did not uh, do a lot of research into the communal aspects of uh, folk music in England in the early 1970s. But it sounds like you have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just (laughs) it's one of the one of the areas that really uh, that I. I like a lot and uh, yeah. read about a lot and you know wish I could have been a part of and all that but um but yeah yeah it seems like a cool like you know I'm sure if this were happening today I'd think like oh it's fucking cheesy like you know I'm sure this is happening at like some shitty bar in town or something where like anyone can get up and play whatever old folk song they want and then the headliner comes up plays for about an hour or so you know, goes and hangs out with everyone. You know, we're we're talking like the sort of places where we would play, like three inch yeah. stages, like not not any no delineation between performer and audience. And this is after he was in Fairport, which 
you know, not the biggest band in the world, but they did, you know, make their mark to some degree anyways, especially like Liege and Leaf. But I don't know. I mean, like, I guess it's not too different from what he's doing now either. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a strange thing. And I guess you're saying, is that what, is that what kind of like brought you to this type of music? And I feel like we're kind of like jumping ahead, but mm-hmm. what makes me think about it? Cause like, Richard and Linda Thompson are like, it's a really specific thing. Mm-hmm. And when I first started listening to it, um, it made me think of, okay, so one time I was watching like VH1 mm-hmm. and it was, there was, it was like somebody from Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. Um, and you might end up telling me who this is, <laughs> but basically they play like Renaissance fair music. Mm. And uh, there was like, it was like the guy playing guitar and then like his partner, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess his wife. And then she had like the corset dress on and then it was just all the kind of like medieval instruments and stuff like that. And so I was like, I never want to hear this again. (laughs) But Well, my my apologies because here you fucking are. (laughs) Well, okay. But this is where this is different. This is where, uh, okay. So it's like there are aspects of it that are there in this but they don't beat it in the head as much as like i would imagine going to a renaissance fair there are like sure. medieval instruments on this sure album. they they play crumb horn for sure yeah there's <laughs> yeah i wrote it down okay so i wrote in my notes say features dulcimer accordion mm-hmm. crumb horn sounds very british ren fair mm-hmm. as well my notes say. i i would i would i would I agree with all of that except for possibly Ren Fair. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to argue against the Ren Fairness of something when there's a crumb horn involved, which <laughs> for the listener, um, imagine a bagpipe, but imagine if you stripped a bagpipe of any sort of its pleasantries. <laughs> it's it's like a regrettable bagpipe. And a bagpipe's already pretty fucking regrettable, if you ask yeah. me. It's a double reed instrument. I, I think it just looks like a curved stick. Yeah, it does. And it's it looks like, like a the, cane the, that you, yeah. 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 It's like the reediest, most nasal sounding, like mm-hmm. but it works. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the thing. They are very tasteful in how they utilize it. Mm-hmm. And I don't it doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Yeah. You know? But like it's it's just like I think there are there are a lot of instruments that people just generally don't like. And I'm saying overall. Mm-hmm. It's like people have this thing where they're like, I don't like banjo. And I'm like, that's crazy. And I'm like, I don't think you mean that, you know. Yeah, and I've heard people yeah. be like, I hate ukulele. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I've heard good ukulele. Mm-hmm. Like it's like it's just in how you use it, or maybe it's just not your taste. But to just be like, mandolin is a shitty instrument is like, mm-hmm. there's so many other ways. I bet there's so many times where like, you've heard banjo on a record and you just don't realize it's banjo, so you just go about your life. Well, exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah, and it's like anything can be integrated. Like I, I don't. Would Would you go to a solo crumhorn recital? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's integrated. Yes, integrated is the best way to put it. Like it's, it's. I mean, and it's, it's just good. Like I don't know how to how to say it. And I listen to Pour Down Like Silver. I listen to I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight. And you told me that I probably wouldn't like Hokey Pokey, um, because you feel like it's like a hastily put together record right and i feel like i liked it fine mm. you know like it so i don't know to, to me it seems like hokey pokey is a road to get from bright lights to silver mm-hmm. like 
so the the broader story of those three records in particular kind of chronicles so they they got really into sufism which um you know i guess like a really um hippie-ish branch of islam yeah that a lot of people were uh or what I gather a lot of people in England were, were getting into at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time Silver, Pour Down Like Silver had come out, they were living in a Sufist, Sufi community um, where, you know, half the songs on Hokey Pokey seem like they have their foot in that world. And half of them seem like they're in the like drinking you know, carousing character stories of, of Bright Lights. So it's yeah. like this, this record that's trying to negotiate two very different worlds where like you get the, the staid stoicism of Pour Down Like Silver where sure the songs have like a longing to them and like a cosmic sense, but they're not quite as like individual character studies as they are on, on uh, Bright Lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. For for me, I feel like it doesn't really hit either height. I don't know. I mean, I, I listened to it um, for the first time in probably a year or two the other day leading up to doing this. And uh, I mean, I, I guess I did kind of like it a little more than I, I thought I did. Um, maybe it's just the cheese of the title song. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little, but, but it's also like there's a specific cheese to all of it so it's kind of like by that point i feel like i had been desensitized since hokey pokey was the last of the three i listened to well i you know i i kind of wonder if that's like a big part of being into this particular era of richard and linda is some form of desensitization yeah because when i first got into it and i don't i apologize if i'm stepping on your feet here and getting the stuff that that you're Mm. um when i was first getting into it um you know my first exposure to you know psych folk or like weirdo folk music or whatever was in the early mid 2000s or so mm-hmm. i heard bands like you know the incredible string band um comas yeah. which i don't think really holds up at all um you know of course nick drake which richard plays on a lot of or on the first two nick drake records mm-hmm. um same management same producer joe boyd um and fairport you know i heard the uh the first couple of fairport records i forget you know i I picked them up at this shop i forget exactly which shop i picked them up it was either mystery train in amherst which is still around or dynamite records in um northampton which probably closed its doors like a decade ago a dozen years ago something like that um where you know those were the two places that i went when i was sort of looking beyond punk to to see like you know what other sounds are there and you know i found the connection point with like you know 1966 67 like freak beat sort of like you know the monks creation all that sort of stuff um pretty things then you know you find all these adjacent bands and they are all adjacent like a band like fairport was playing shows at the ufo in middle earth which was where like the sid barrett era pink floyd was playing Mm -hmm. again joe boyd the um the producer for fairport 
and Floyd were uh, was was booking all that. So, you know, it's all interconnected. It's kind of like our you know our world now. You yeah. know, you don't really have to draw too long a line to get from one band to another, as differently as they may sound. So, the first several Fairport records that I picked up, you know, they were the first one, the self-titled one, and then the second one, what we did on our holidays. I loved those records. Um, I remember like my weird distinct memory of, you know, falling in love with Fairport convention was listening to the, um, their second record, what we did on our holidays. Um, as I was driving up to a show that Ampere was playing in New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. um, which I guess getting back to your Renfair thing, there were at that show, there were people like LARPing with like foam weapons in the uh in the field behind where we played yeah like people that were at the show so you know maybe maybe there's something to that um, yeah there there seems to be kind of like a pipeline for like people that are like because <laughs> well, all right so would you say then was fairport kind of like the first foray into this type of music you know, for kind of connecting the two. I mean, the I leap mean, from Fairport to Richard and Linda Thompson isn't really that much at all. But, you know, it's like, it's like what kind of got you there? Because that's because if I'm thinking of binaries, and I know I'm a person, I'm a person that like really isn't like I don't just listen to punk. I mean, I I don't know if I need to really say that. <laughs> um, but but it's like you, I I guess I kind of place binaries on people. So. It's like you kind of think, I think about the bands that you've been in and I think about like Ampere. So it's like, so kind of looking at what you view someone as, like, you know, it's like, how did this guy that's essentially in this like punkish kind of screamo y mm-hmm. kind of band get into Fairport? But that's like the only way I saw you in that, in that moment was as the guy from Ampere. So it's like, but you're an actual, actualized person <laughs> that likes a lot of different things. But really, what do you feel like even got you to the point of like Grateful Dead? Was that after Fairport or what's your journey with that? So Dead is a little bit more of a complicated journey because, you know, it always kind of seemed like this like thing that maybe you had to just sort of, you know, with people you really trust say, you know, American Beauty is a pretty good record. Yeah. And they'd be like, I fucking know. And and it would be your little secret, you know, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't like the dead. Yeah. Why would you like the dead? Um, But yeah, I mean, like, so for me, they fell, the dead fell into that same sort of like, especially that era, fell into the same sort of like folk informed weirdo music that Fairport did. So it's kind of the same umbrella. I heard, you know, I had heard dead songs, obviously, because they're part of the greater cultural consciousness, but mm-hmm. I really heard the dead probably around the same time I, I first heard Fairport. Um, and, you know, for me at the time, you know, I remember I was at my, um, you know, in the like downloading shit off Seek, burning CDRs mm-hmm. yeah. sort of days. Um all those ended up for whatever reason at my, uh, at my folks house in their garage. Um, a couple of years ago when I was last out there, I, um, I was looking through the stack of burned CDs and I was like, sure, there's Fairport. There's, you know, 
Comus, Jan Dukes de Grey, all of these like, you know, weird British folk rock bands. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also, yeah, the dead records. And, yeah. you know, I remember thinking like, you know, I, I remember thinking that like there was a point where they became bad, mm-hmm. which I do not agree with <laughs> anymore. I celebrate yeah. the entire catalog as they say i feel like i i I know we've had this conversation because we've talked about the dead a lot and it actually still feels like something that i'm still trying to crack but i feel like i listen to it too much to say that i'm not a fan right so so it's like that but they have a lot of music and not all of it is for me but i also when you i think when you mentioned something about their bad era um, or someone else did. I was like, but I, I like that era. That's like what I feel like is easier for me to digest sometimes. What I people feel like consider with, their bad era. With a band like that and, you know, a band like, um, well, not a band, but a, a musician like Richard, you know, it's kind of like a war of attrition, right? Like mm-hmm. you put out so much stuff, some of it's going to be great. Like, you know, I, did, I didn't love... To, to draw the, the line here, I didn't love everything Jay Church put out, mm-hmm. but they put out a fucking lot and some of it was amazing. Yeah. Um, so the way, the way that for me, my obsession works, and I, I do think that I have some degree of an obsessive personality, which, which predisposes me to, you know, becoming so rapidly into, you know, these things that seem too too vast to to even try to approach. Like I was intimidated by the Dead's catalog when I when I first looked at it. I remember even like you know a decade ago or whenever, seeing a friend who I knew was like one of the few punk Deadheads that I knew, saying like, "Hey man, I've been listening to a lot of Dead. There is so much. Like what's what's like?" And you know, I got into the studio stuff first because that was my predisposition was you know, oh, you're a band, you want your studio stuff to be representative of what you're doing. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've read, um, yeah. and I'm sure that with whatever listening of the dead that, that you've done that, you know, you come to realize that the studio stuff was so secondary to them. Yeah. That yeah, like, I mean, they, they were about what's... the moment and like, you know, it's really to our benefit that there's so, so, so much captured out there that like you can listen to from show to show and nothing's ever the same close sometimes but like you know there is for me at first I was like ah it's live stuff it's not as great like the vocal harmonies aren't awesome Jerry's a little flat sometimes on his vocals and you know that's that's not it I was wrong. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's I think those are the good things about the dead now. And also like within like the last like year, I felt like actually listening to more live stuff, just kind of putting it on as I I worked, Mm -hmm. like really made it like, oh, I'm a fan. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and then I was I think even like um, like like someone mentioned, like if you're even talking to me about listening to live dead stuff, then you're a fan. You know, and I'm like, oh, I guess I am. <laughs> well, it yeah. creeps up on you, you know, like, and you yeah. just kind of like, you know, you can only, <clears throat> I think that growing up in, in punk, it it's mm-hmm. a hard thing to admit to, 
Like you don't, you don't cop to being a deadhead and it's not an easy thing. I was always the young one in, in my friend group, which is funny to say, because now I'm like, you know, absolutely the old one. Um, but you know, I would, oh man, I, I remember feeling like I had to hide it from my bandmates that I was like, you know, that I popped American beauty into my disc man. Yeah. That, you know, I wanted to like see, you know, as we were driving the van from Portland to San Francisco, I wanted to like listen to something that to me was representative of NorCal and like the lookouts were never that great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so do you feel like it's kind of something that you've kind of been into, but and now in, I don't know, we'll say recent years, you're kind of just more, you're like happy to not hide it, I guess is like a thing. Yeah, like, you do know, you feel like, like because if you're saying that you still lived at home and you had burned CDs at Fairport, this is a long, that's a long, you know, that's a long journey with it. So it feels like you're just like, have come to terms with this. Oh, I, I, I never would have, like, I, Fairport was something I was always very, very happy to um, recommend to people to like, you know, I, I sort of saw them as analogous, at least for those first two, maybe three records to the birds. Like I saw them as, you know, the English birds, mm -hmm. which of course the birds were like trying to sound like, of course, Dylan meets the Beatles. Yeah. So it's sort of this like reciprocal exchange of, uh, of like cultural ping pong or whatever, where like, you know, Beatles inform the birds, birds inform Fairport. They actually, you know, Fairport ended up in the Liaison Leaf sessions covering a bird song they covered ballad of easy rider mm -hmm. and it's incredible and it's such a yeah. departure from um i mean i i absolutely recommend tracking it down i i don't think it was ever officially released on anything but you know maybe like a bonus track on whatever like legacy edition cd of liaison leaf um i'm sure someone's gonna like say that i'm butchering how you pronounce that but you know whatever yeah. But like, there's kind of like when you think of things in like degrees, it's kind of like once I figured out who like John Mayall was, you know, it was like because before I really knew who he was, I thought like he was like, let's say a Bobo Clapton or something. And I'm talking about sure. Pete Clapton. But then you're kind of realizing you're like, oh, it's kind of the other way around. <laughs> Right. You know, it's like, right. you know, and I, I know all that's clear now with what we're dealing with with Eric Clapton, you know, <laughs> but then it's like, but it's like, you just don't know these things. It's like, you know, and then even not crazy long ago, I'm like, oh, because I never really thought I don't think about Eric Clapton that much. Uh, and, you know, Thank but God. yeah, but it's like it's but I also know that it's like I think he has a really good early era. Like, I'll give him that but it falls off. But what I realized recently is the things that you make, well, I think that's a good song realizing that most of them are JJ Kale. And I was like, Oh, I mean, oh. and I should have felt like I should have known that, you know? So, th so there are great guitarists and then there are great musicians and like maybe Clapton could play. He could certainly play like no yeah. one, no one can take that away. But you know, as far as the songwriting goes, he was in a lot of great bands. Yeah, he had you know, a lot I mean, like, of good people around him. Well, exactly. And I guess that's as far as talent will get you. Just like talent without maybe like a vision or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that Clapton didn't have a vision. I'm sure he did. Um, we had a vision of having really talented people around him. Well, exactly. And, uh, and of, uh, <laughs> Which is fine. And, of a, and of a white Britain. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know, um, yeah, totally. You know, uh, no way are we like okay, caping for, yeah, yeah. Fuck Clapton. But you know, like, like clearly if we need to say it outright, you know, fuck Eric Clapton. Right. You know? Right. But kind of like those, here, those degrees, it's kind of like thinking of. We're invoking like, him. We have to. <laughs> well, and this is, this is where it feels like it's like, uh, you know how like we're taught history mm-hmm. and you're kind of like taught these things like, oh, this person was the blank or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in the way of music history, it's kind of like you're fed that kind of a leading person in the British scene is Eric Clapton. Well, there's, there's like, that one piece of graffiti that, that like someone tagged when they were like probably like pissed drunk and 19 years old, Clapton is God. And that somehow, you know, my dad loved cream. My dad was in a band yeah. called Foam, whose, I mean, guess their main influence. It's cream. Well, I'll do you one better. My dad was in a band called Harvest. Oh, man. Guess, they, yeah. They, guess they were what a great they... hardcore band. <laughs> yeah, my dad was in the hardcore band Harvest. Um, but man, he, he must have had you young. Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> um but they did like i don't know it's just it was country rock as sure you know yeah no, yeah, dude, it sounded like exactly yeah. yeah uh it was yeah my dad is a huge neil young guy but when i got to a point with neil young that i started listening to things like zuma mm-hmm. my dad's not into that like he See, likes that's 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 my dad with the kinks and the birds where you know i get into like the clarence white era of the birds and he's like mm-hmm. no 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 and you know, you like he'll he'll say like you know the Gene Clark era was great, and of course like Gene Clark like absolutely one thousand percent one of the most talented American musicians of all time doesn't get his due. I think like a lot of people like you and me probably like him a lot, but like you know he should be I I don't know whatever. So my dad loves those early Birds records. Not so into the uh, you know rootsy you know, like 15 minute versions of eight miles high. Um, Those are the good ones. (laughs) I mean, they're both good, but it's like, they're both great. The birds are, to me, they have an undictable catalog. Like even, even their bad records have moments of one of my favorite bird songs is the song I trust off of that record bird maniacs, which you see in every fucking dollar bin with like those like life mask things Mm -hmm. of them on the cover great song bad production great song maybe i mean if you've listened to any of roger mcguinn's solo stuff too that's all pretty you know i can sign off on that 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 entire cast of characters is really just like i don't know like aspirational well well, that's that's what's interesting to me and it's like to bring it back to richard and linda thompson is like when i listen to these records more it's kind of like why it's like i knew the name richard thompson mm-hmm. but i don't i don't know now why he isn't part of the conversation more and maybe that's a different thing if you live in england maybe people are like i'm tired of hearing of richard thompson well you know he doesn't live in england <laughs> but it's like <laughs> what it's like it's weird even with fairport it's like you're told that you know certain bands and then it's like 
like what kind of makes one like why you know, why is it always the birds and not Fairport Convention? Or why is it always, you know, Karazu Stills, Nash and Young and not you know, and I know you could we could say this about every band that ever sure. existed. Sure. You know. Why is it Blink one eighty two and not late bloomer? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> why why is it ride and not kindling? Yeah. Is it ride? <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if it is but um you know or like even the thing that's like why is it always uh my bloody valentine and oh, it's sure. like to no yeah. disrespect to them because it's like i listen to it more than enough but sure. it's like there are other things mm-hmm. you know and that's that's like the thing it's like it's like you give all the real estate to whatever we're gonna say is the contemporary richard and linda thompson you don't end up hearing about richard and linda thompson no, and I don't think he did it at the time either, unless you were like one of us. <laughs> I guess not. Yeah. You know, like, and, and maybe that's part of what makes it so great is because, you know, they were so into like following the muse or whatever, chasing whatever they were, they were on that, you know, they, they didn't really like, make really any, they didn't make too many waves. You know, Everything that I've heard, obviously, before my time, I wasn't born when it came out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, their divorce record was seemingly the only one that people like gave too much of a shit about at the time. Shoot out the lights, mm-hmm. which I mean, it's a dramatic record for two relatively low drama people. Yeah, and I think that might be the answer to like why Crosby, Stills, Nash and & Young and not Fairport is because, you know, you hear so much about how various members of that band can't stand other members of that band. And it's incredibly public, incredibly acrimonious. You don't hear that, like Fairport, they all still, you know, they, they just kept happily doing their thing. I think they're still putting out records. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're at least okay. <laughs> yeah but like, i guess that, that you know, richard still shows, richard quit fairport in 1970 and he still shows up when they do their uh their annual fairport property convention i, I mean 50 52 years on and he's you know still, still friends with these sort people. of in the band when he wants sometimes well, so i i read i read his biography um beeswing beeswing um it's i mean i, I recommend it but yeah, it just really underscores that like, sure, there's some drama every now and again, but it's like family, you know, it's like, like drama between close friends where it's like, yeah, fuck you. I love you. Yeah. You know, and that's, that seems to be where they're at. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's easier to, I mean, I can think of plenty of instances where I look at certain things because I know that there's drama around it. Yeah. I guess I, when there's a story to tell, then you can sell it. You know, it's it's the Fleetwood Mac thing, you know? Oh, God, yeah, that's that's a perfect yeah. example. I mean, it's, ex- yeah, it's like exactly that, you know? Like, it's, so it's like if you're a pleasant person, you're pro- I mean, how, <laughs> it feels like the most successful people are not pleasant people. Well, maybe that's a, it's allegory against success. <laughs> well, I mean, stay, but, stay but it's also too, like, <laughs> But if you are, if you are a quote unquote, a failure, so let's say in the sense that, you know, if I'm let's let, let's just play a game that we're saying like Richard and the Thompson are like relatively failures, but it's like, 
someone else's failure can be someone else's success because if you I don't if think you're... I want to be on record supporting <laughs> Well, okay, but this is what I mean. I'll say it a little better. When you think of those artists that kind of like had a moment. Right. And then they kind of don't, but then like they still come through your town and they play a thousand cap room. Mm-hmm. Then someone's like, "Where'd they go?" And you're like, yeah. "I think they're still doing fine." Right. But they're not well, a millionaire, you know, but it's like it's like there's no in between. I mean, Rich, Rich was still tours heavily, and I, like yeah. I, I've been to probably a, you know, dozen or more shows of his. Um, probably more, probably more like twenty. Um, you know, I mean, I'm like I'm often the youngest person in the room, yeah. but <laughs> but it's a, I, I mean, it's always a, a full room, and he's he's funny, and like the songs are moving, and he's, he's just like clearly still really enjoying what he's doing does he usually play solo it's like 50 50 okay um, and what size rooms do you think they are usually it's really hard to say um well so we played this place um the academy of music in in northampton that's the the one time i've seen him hyper locally um i don't know what the what what size of the room it is but that's like the sort of place where like you know dino plays um yola tango is played there um like if cat power came through that's where cat power okay. would play yeah uh, so it's like you know he's playing at like you know legacy indie rock band capacity levels that's you know? a pretty good career that's a pretty fucking good career <laughs> yeah but I mean, it's, it's like a, you're not but, he's, but he's quietly been doing it yeah you're not Maybe. you know yeah but that's the funny thing it's like it's like if yeah i feel like in a lot of people's minds like if you're not neil young mm-hmm. then you hang up hang it up yeah know? but it's like there's even like there's even like, with like hanging up going on yeah we should all hang up <laughs> yeah if it, we're all not neil young but that that's like a strange thing because it it feels like from the looks of like how much he was touring um uh, you know with it and it's like he had like a big tour he was kind of long-term doing and it got canceled due to the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. it's like it's like the guy seems to always be on tour like you know you get yeah. you get the idea that he just really loves the road which like you know doing it for 50 plus years and and still loving it that's really like i look at that and i think like man i hope that i'm still like out there doing it and loving it and just like playing with my friends and you know two friends and neil is so richard is not neil but i think that there is kind of an overlap there with you know both of their decisions that they seem to both make pretty early on to just be very willful about their careers right like to just do what they're gonna do like you don't make a record like trans (laughs) if you're not a willful person yeah and you know you don't in richard's case make a record with your friends celebrating the ancient art of morris dancing if you're not willful about you know what you're putting out there and what you're trying to so i i think that history has been or like you know time has been probably kinder to neil's bank account but I, I mean, I think that there's there's something really like intensely admirable about 
Richard and Linda's, um, and you know, for that matter, all of Fairport's dedication to trying to find this like thread of ancient English music mm-hmm. or like medieval English music and bring those to the rock and roll era. Like to do this modern version. And then there's kind of a connection to the dead there too, where like the vibe that I get from the dead is that they're on this quest to find out like what is America, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like a very American question. That's a very young country question. It's like, what the fuck is this place? Like in England, you kind of, you know, you have your like millennia of history to be able to say like, okay, well, we know what this place is, but what's the essence of this place? Mm-hmm. so you know i mean there's there's i mean that's is that ever going to be really cool no I, I don't think that's ever going to be cool but it's no, i mean it's grateful like, dead is about as close as we could get because of the cult that they were able to you know build around it but and that was only that's, late, that's though they, they had their first yeah. hit when they were like okay casey jones was a mm, hit but like yeah. you know touch of gray like when are you going to be 30 some odd years into your career or I'm sorry, 20 odd years into your career before your first, you know, top 10 song. Yeah. Like what? Six years before they stopped being a band. And they, and they'd been playing that song live for like five years before that. Yeah. And that's, that's what's strange even too. Like, uh, it's, it even starts being like when you actually start like breaking down all of those things with grateful dead like kind of getting past like i remember growing up my parents didn't listen to grateful dead but we had a rottweiler that had a grateful dead collar you know to me it was like (laughs) to me it was a product sure you know and i think to most people it is it's hard to kind of break through the product of it because there are still kind of the the kind of there's a caricature that's involved with it and i feel like when you can break past it Grateful Dead as a band itself are so much cooler than the caricature uh, that people have made them to be. And also the character caricature of like a Grateful Dead fan is. Well, I, I think that that's kind of the selling point is if you can get people to realize how fucking punk the dead were, um, you know, cutting past all the, you know, like branding, merchandising bullshit, you know, the whole stigma around deadheads or whatever. Um, I mean, there's a lot there and there's a lot there. Like, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the documentary series on them, the long strange trip documentary. Mm-hmm. I, no, I've been I heard from, uh, Oh, it's, it's good. I mean, I've heard from a lot of my, my friends that have recently been getting into the dead, that that was, you know, a turning point for them is realizing how punk they were mm-hmm. realizing how, you know, they were not successful because of what they like they were they found success just through attrition and like they would have been doing the same thing with or without success yeah you know they they'd be grinding it out they'd be you know what's what's a good example of a punk band that just like no one cares about and never broke up i mean when i think about (laughs) that i just think of uh, they kind of broke up though sort of but when I think of our band could be your life with like the, the way the chapter with butthole surfers ends. Oh yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. Yeah. Cause they were really late in their career before they had a hit. So I yep. feel like in a lot of ways there's like similarities and they were just like band of weirdos. Mm-hmm. And then at some point people were like, yeah, this is fine. And you're like, what? <laughs> this doesn't make sense. If you look at anything they yeah. did before. 
Yeah. You know, and it's like, but it, that was their touch of gray. And it's like, yeah. you know, they'll forever have that. And yeah. that's the only thing I can kind of think of, um, you know, or even like, I mean, that's like the main one because it, it's such a strange thing. Like it shouldn't have happened. Like it shouldn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like to be that far into your career, like. Well, no, never mind, never mind all that, but but also to be called the butthole surfers. Yeah. I mean, I guess that was the era though. <laughs> but it, it's a little, it's a, like when I look at posters and stuff from that era, like any of the big ones too, it's like they would call them like BH surfers, you know, and stuff. And, and so it's like, I don't know how you sold this because you can't even really fully sell it. Like I remember as a kid, you know, it's like it would be edited in like the kind of penny CD thing, you know, but I, but that made me want it. Well, do, do you remember? Um, I mean, of course you remember. It was only a couple of years ago, but like, you know, five, six years ago or whenever when Perfect Pussy was like the biggest hardcore band, right? Yeah. It, I mean, they they were a good band, but to me, they, you know, a lot of the cachet behind them was, you know, the name and what they represented to people. Um, you know, if they had been named like, you know, let's say like they and Napalm Death switched names, right? Like, I'm not sure they would have gotten like Pitchfork or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. it, it wouldn't have been like quite as in your face, which maybe that's why a band like butthole surfers at that time while still being a censored thing could have been like or like a band like fucked up yeah yeah i mean same example i mean i think they're both kind of comparisons i guess with perfect pussy and uh fucked up it's like they are bands good enough to kind of like break that down because i feel like if all they you had for was asshole a... parade well yeah but like uh um, work for bathtub shitter well there's there's a lot of examples it's like uh i mean we could just like keep yeah, it didn't work for anal con. You know? Didn't work for fuck on the beach. <laughs> but the, to the point of that is like <laughs> Perfect Pussy and Fucked Up were actually both legitimately good bands. So I feel like they were able to kind of like, yes, it can get you through the door with the you know stupid name, but then they're able to back it up, you know? Right. Well, you know, and, and I think that that's like the, the getting through the door thing is the big part there because like those early fucked up records, like to me those were no different than like, you know, a Haymaker record or whatever, mm -hmm. or yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm using Haymaker cause they're part of the same scene. I think same similar members, but like, you know, Haymaker never would have ended up on Matador. Would yeah. career suicide have ended up on pitch? No, <laughs> no. And that's, that's like, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, sharing members, but like, there, there's 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 this thing where i think taking a risk like naming your band something like butthole surfers might come with a reward might because yeah. it very much might backfire yeah yeah i mean and there's it's, so it's, many it's, things it's kind of designed to backfire because i'm sure when they named themselves but, butthole surfers it was like so far from their thoughts that this might be a thing that anyone cared about outside of their community yeah, I mean, that is the thing because it's like, it's complicated because I think it, it's like it did work for those bands, but we can almost think of like so many instances of local bands that we might know that had a similar-ish name. Which it is didn't get, <laughs> It didn't get them <laughs> that far outside of their town right. in, in relative ways, you know? And well, so, I mean, we're talking about them now, so. Uh, true, so I guess they win, you know? <laughs> 
Uh, nothing makes sense. I think is what we're saying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, and I guess like, well, okay. One thing I was thinking of earlier when you mentioned the, uh, like the Sufi Islam thing, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, the Sufism, you know, that that's the thing. I'm not even sure like what that religion is, but the little research I've done, I think it lines up what you're saying, but it does make it interesting that like you would have that push and pull. But what it made me think of was like the Cro-Mags. You know, to be like, a, to be a, to be a self-professed Hare oh, Krishnan ban, but you profess so much like violence, which feels antithetical to what Hare Krishna should be about. Yeah. You so, know? you know, I, I guess, you know, my, my read on things is that Fairport was a pretty heavy drinking band. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are some quotes out there. Richard saying essentially that the the Sufism filled something in him that alcohol had prior. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fresh off reading his biography. It just came out last year. Um, he goes into, you know, the whole, like the whole judgment arc that we all go into when we get into something new, right? Where like Sufism became, I guess his, essentially like his raison d'etre where you know he started kind of like you know pushing his friends from the drinking days to the side because you know he would maybe judge them a little for worth noting he is still a committed muslim oh wow he still doesn't drink he still does you know he's still he's in it um, but I think it's found that balance between like living a non-judgmental, um, you know, in the same way that anyone does when, when they're doing a thing for long enough. Like when you start doing anything, I'll call it, we'll, we'll call it the, the bell curve of asshole, right? Yeah. Where you start doing anything. And for me, I'll use, I'll use bike messenger. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Yeah. I, I would say I would say straight edge for me, but I want to I want to hear your bike messenger. So so in my in my early twenties, I got really into bikes, right? Yeah. Um, and then you know you you're you get into it, you're just like purely interested in learning from anyone that has more experience than you. Did you get the hat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh come on. <laughs> So, so I got really into bikes and this is why I moved from Western Mass to New York was because I wanted to be one of those cyclists. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to be, uh, you know, I wanted to be a, a bike messenger in the big city. It's, you know, really just like cringe to, to say now, but, you know, I was in my, I guess at that point, mid twenties, um, far enough in my rear view that, you know, no judgment against myself other than just like, man i wish i could have stopped myself from from living this way but you know you find out a little bit from someone that has more experience than you you start to know a little mm-hmm. right start to know a little start to judge the people that are they're here on the arc where you used to be that are just finding out about it and you're like it's new to you well you, know, you, you don't know that xyz you know, you, you can't tell me about it, like a specific gear ratio and like why having a 47 tooth chain ring is better than having, you know, like all this stupid shit that no one actually cares about yeah. but you do because you're in your mid twenties and like trying to prove something to yourself. 
Um, or I understand it because I used to be a Mac, so gear ratios are definitely important. It, it's important for BMX. Yeah, it's super. Is it important for riding around a city being drunk? I would say if the ratio is right, then it shouldn't be important, depending because it should be the same. Like if the ratio is right, then it shouldn't really matter. But I guess there's things where people could explain it. I guess we're going to become a bike podcast. I, I think that if, if, if you're like a person you know, that, that knows what they're doing, then it might make sense. But if you're like a, you know, 24 year old living in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, dreaming about being a bike messenger in New York, then it probably doesn't matter what you're. Well, and also I guess we're, we're almost, it's almost too like when you get to that point, if we're saying the top of the bell curve, that's where a lot of times people are really gatekeeping, you know, oh my God, I guess yeah. at the top of it is just is gatekeeping, mm-hmm. you know? And then like, it's like, I don't understand, like, as a kid that when I was BMXing, why someone couldn't have just told me that I needed, like, 3613 or whatever mm-hmm. it is, you know? And then, like, but it's like I went, like, I had, like, a 36 with, you know, the one that's, I can't remember the one that's with 40s, I guess 20-something or whatnot. Yeah. I can't remember it now. Um, so any BMXers that are listening are judging me. But, you know, it's like, so then you're, you know, you don't get it right. But it's like, it's easy enough for someone just to tell you, you know, that thing, but it's, you do this gatekeepy thing, you know, with that, that point, you know, isn't that just kind of what happens in it is, communities sadly. that are kind of on the fringes though, is like, there are so few, and maybe it's different now, but at least at the time, you know, early two thousands, mid two thousands or whatever, so few people involved that like, you kind of want to guard your, your standing, which is, you know, totally not the right approach like you know a higher tide lifts every boat mm-hmm. um if you're fighting for you know the tide to stay low then like you're really just i mean you're not helping anyone you're not helping yourself you're not helping any semblance of community and i, I should have known better at that point having been part of uh you know a diy community mm-hmm. that like you know you don't be an asshole about the things you know yeah i mean it's a hard lesson to learn like I, but you know, like I feel like you know, it's like so many other artists like had this kind of era. It's like you know the Bob Dylan Christian era, you know, mm-hmm. like where it's like so much in it, you know. Um, but like pour down like silver, it's like, it's there. It's like embedded in everything on that record. It feels you know, like. I I don't hear any judgment on that record though. Like, and and that's that's the era where like, you know, in Richard's book, he talks about how like you know, he was pushing his drinking friends away, mm-hmm. um, you know, because he was pretty sure that he was on the right path, whatever, um, as we all are when we're, you know, discovering something new. You know, I guess like Sandy Denny being pretty drunk um, was kind of like hurt and felt betrayed by, you know, their new sobriety. She was really good friends with Linda as well. Um, yeah. But that, I mean, that's, that's where you end up, isn't it? Like, yeah. you get this new thing. The new thing means the world to you. And, you know, as you seek to define yourself by it, um, you the collateral damage might be that you define other people by your experience with it, mm-hmm. rather than as the people that, that they, they are. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah we're doing some searching here, aren't we? Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and coming out the other side, hopefully kind of integrating it back into like a semblance of a well, you know, quote-unquote normal life. Right, finding a balance. You know, yeah. like balance is, is like the, the, you know, the goal at the end of it is to like work these things you care about into the greater architecture of your day-to-day. You know, I mean, we're we're not all going to to just deal with people that agree with us or that have the same world experience that that we have. So, you know. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because as a person who is still currently straight edge, it's like outside of me just saying it there, like for the most part, I don't even know if most people know that I am. And that's right. that's where I feel like I'm doing it right for me. Right. And it's just that it feels like it's like my own personal journey. You know, I've come, you know, if we're using the bell curve thing, I've come to the other side of it where I'm not like proselytizing right. to people about it. But I think the real works in something like that, you know, I guess with Richard Thompson, with you know, kind of still being involved in this, is when you are in the real world and you're right. able to use this and practice against other things instead of like, you know, that kind of idea. Actually, I think of another hardcore band. I think of like Shelter. And there was a point in Shelter's history where it's like they were living, you know, among other Hare Krishnas and like, right. and I don't want to call them convents. I'm not sure what they're actually called. Uh, monasteries, becomes, it, I guess. It becomes yeah. an echo chamber at that yes. point. Yeah. You kind of got to get around just people that are different than you and kind of try out your beliefs against them in a way. Not even that you're telling them, but that's, it's just real world shit. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it'd be great if we could be in our little like vacuum, you know, sectors of our world where we're only interacting with, you know, people that are, are having the same experiences. You can make the same jokes with, you know, like, but, but that's not, that's not the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think in a silly sense too, it's like, I feel like there's like memes that we send each other that have so many layers to it. Oh my god! That yeah. If I were to show that to someone at my work, yeah, people people that haven't been like terminally <laughs> internet poisoned, yeah. <laughs> then it's yeah, like people they that don't... aren't just like, you know, I I was talking with Gretchen about this, um, you know, just just a couple of days ago, how like, you know, a lot of the memes that that we share among ourselves you know, I'll also send to Gretchen. And it's like, you know, you think about like showing this to like your parents and like what their reaction would be. Mm-hmm. I think about like showing my brother who is not like terminally internet poisoned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, I don't know, like what, whatever meme from like band meme 666 or whatever. Yeah. Or like insane Johnny, you know, it's like, oh you know, my God, yeah, the, the steps it would take. Okay. Like it kind of an example that kind of brings it a little bit more real world. Have you ever, I mean, I don't know if you're like currently in like therapy or anything, mm-hmm. but um, I've explained, I've tried to explain why I'm upset <laughs> about something in music. But the steps that it takes yeah, to get yeah. there, it's truly, well, you it's gotta, truly you gotta, is fucking the, me up. But uh, I feel yeah. like I, like I the have character to development tell. involved in yeah, <laughs> and it's like you have figurines and you're like, see, that's that person there, right? You know, and they're like, it's like you have to explain, 
I feel like it's like I'm explaining like EverQuest or World of World of <laughs> Warcraft or something. It's like, well, this person did this, and see if you if you you can give money to people online, and then they're like, what? Like I don't know if you remember EverQuest, but I remember that first being the time it was like an online thing. That was the first time I ever heard about something. Like the rumor was, and I don't know if this kind of urban legend is real. Essentially, a guy lost all his money in like EverQuest and killed himself. Mm. And that was the first time in my life where I kind of realized that like people could kind of live a life online, <laughs> you know? And then, but that's what you feel like. It's like, I'm trying to explain to a therapist, like you're so, there's so many layers. You're like, if you're in front of your, like your grandmother and like, why are you sad? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, cause I've been on Twitter today and. <laughs> okay. If you were to, t- I hope he lives forever, but let's say if Richard Thompson died, mm-hmm. do you feel like there's how many people in your life? Could you express that to IRL? IRL. Um, more than you'd think. Okay, that that's good. That's good because that of, because of the life that I've curated for myself. That that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, just even even in like our like shared orbit, like you know, Justin, for yeah, sure, for sure, Gretchen, for sure, yeah, Jay, for sure. Um, Does this make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Jay, Jay was someone that I I turned to. So as much as I loved Fairport when I was younger, uh-huh. I was a holdout on Richard Sola. Okay. Because I saw it as kind of like dad rock, I guess. It's good like, we're getting into this an hour into the conversation. Well, you know, you can edit it, right? But yeah. No, <laughs> sort of. But no, I think it's great. I'm just messing with you. Where, like, you know, I heard I heard Bright Lights. And, you know, I, I had listened to it before and thought, like, eh, I don't know what's this like really nasal reedy instrument i'm not interested you know um but there was one day i was you know i was in my bike shop days and you know i just threw it on at work one day or you know maybe it came on after fairport or something like that and it just hit and i knew that jay was really into really into richard um i knew that that justin was really into richard thompson I was like, all right, I'm ready. You know, there, there's this huge backlog that I need to get into now. I remember, um, you know, whether it was like texting or in person or whatever, I, I asked Jay what his favorite, like what, what's the record that's going to totally sell me on Richard Thompson? And, you know, I, I know what my answer would have been now. Looking back, I would say pour down like silver. Because for me, that's like the stripped down, like, no chrome horn sort of you know just like a pure distillation of like you know most of the time a three-piece band doing a thing that feels deeply personal but like also like extremely relatable jay's answer was and i don't know if you've heard this but richard has a live solo acoustic record called small town romance mm-hmm absolutely staggeringly beautiful it's it's like a collection of all of his most miserable saddest songs Mm -hmm. performed in the most miserable saddest way possible (laughs) it's um i I mean it's 
it's great. I think it's like from 83 or 84 or something. So pretty, pretty fresh after the split. There are a lot of Richard and Linda songs on it, just done solo. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's truly fantastic. And it kind of opens the door to a lot of his 80s stuff that might be a little harder a pill to swallow if you're not ready for, you know, 80s production values and all that. Yeah, I think what's kind of a fucked up thing is like, because of, I don't know, like classic rock radio or I don't know, just my head. A lot of times, like that's that's kind of the go-to thing people will say. But what I've realized in kind of more recent years is that's kind of where I need to start with a lot of things because that's some for some reason what my where brain, in the eighties? Yeah, the eighty <laughs> like eighties tones and stuff like make a lot of sense to me. Well, man, you got a lot to choose from from uh, from Richard's catalog then. Then I, I guess I need to dive in with. Oh that. my god! Well, so the thing with Richard's solo records is. Every record's a little cheesy mm-hmm. in its own ways. And every record is like, it has its moments of staggering brilliance. Like, do you know, so if, if I were to say Richard Thompson amnesia, look up what Richard Thompson amnesia looks like because I will look it up so I don't describe it wrong. Um, oh yes, I do know this album cover. Yeah. I totally know this album yep. cover. It's so Holy there's a shit. guy shaving, <laughs> looking in the mirror, and in the mirror is Richard Thompson dressed as a jester, juggling <laughs> against a cloudy sky. I, <laughs> I mean, it's Jesus fucking Christ. So, so if you've made it this far in in this podcast, all two of you, um, like really look it up just like pull your phone out google image search this it's when you when i see album art like that which i, I kind of <laughs> like it in a fucked up way like it feels like so familiar of an era um but i also <laughs> scroll down i'm like who the fuck put this out and it's Capitol records that's yep. what's wild like yep. if people we know these days and let's say even successful artists that we obviously don't really know um put out a record of the album cover look like that it would not be coming out on capital or you know no no like that was a time you know here's there's actually a different type of cheesiness that i think is really endearing and actually made me really like these records is that the cheese doesn't feel like he has to couch it i mean it okay the cheese in these records the cheese doesn't feel like he has to couch it in a humor that kind of takes you out of it. Yes, there are funny elements, but it feels right. sincere. Right. And that's the difference. Cause there are things like when you get to like, I don't know, there's so many things you could kind of mention. It feels like they want to say a sincere thing, but a lot of times they couch it in a joke. Like Warren Zevon even does that. A lot of the right. LA people and all that stuff. And I love well, I mean, that you, kind you, of thing. Even a lot of the Silver Juice records are like that too. completely yeah. miserable, but also hilarious. Yeah, and I I get it because it's like I'm that person, but it's like sure. sometimes I feel like it's like as music, it's like even if it's cheesy, I want it to sit in it, mm-hmm. and it feels like sometimes by making it into a joke, it kind of takes away from that miserableness that I want to sit in a little it, bit more. It defangs know? a little, yeah. Like yeah. for me, you know, I I. I I totally, I, I feel like I do the same thing with the Gold Dust stuff, particularly is like, these are miserable songs. 
but I don't want my friends, you know, worrying. So <laughs> throw in a joke. Right? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I've done it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, but like, I do, ima- I... imagine writing some of these like really tragic songs and then, you know, when it's time for Capitol Records to ask you to make a, a promo photo, you know, asking for a Kubota chainsaw. Yeah. But that's, that's what actually makes it the best. I love, I, it's like, as a kid, it's like, we all loved like, I don't know, Weird Al is still awesome, but it's like, whatever kind of joke band, it's like, we loved so many of them. And I can say personally, I did. But as I got older, it's like, I love when a band has a playful persona, but it's like, I'm not really on board with a lot of joke music anymore. Yeah. You know? And so like, that's great that like, that that promo picture is great, and I yeah that we're describing and people can't see, but look it up. I mean, well, I just you, you know I I would say like seeing Richard in like the modern world, you know I've I've only seen Richard in the modern world, obviously. Like yeah, um, so he you know notoriously has like these real like pit of despair sort of like you know this back catalog of misery, mm-hmm. which might be you know like why it appealed to me in the first place or whatever as a pretty fucking miserable person but um in between songs you're laughing so he'll play a song like beeswing and you know you tear up it's incredibly moving and then like he tells this self-deprecating joke afterwards yeah like it's i, I wouldn't say showmanship is what's happening there so much as just like here's a guy that understands like the whole like spectrum of human emotion or something i don't know (laughs) (laughs) or someone who's just been on stage for 50 years and realizes that like people don't want misery in between misery and misery (laughs) yeah when you saw him the many times you've seen him was he dressed like an aging guile from street fighter yeah 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 yeah, he no, seems he, he's, to he's always like the, wear the beret. He's yeah. So recently, uh, recently um, Jay interviewed him. Okay. Um, yeah, Mascus did an interview with him on um, like it was like a live stream, like probably what we're like like what we're doing here now, mm-hmm. um, just like live and for a radio station, I think, um, or their website, something like something to that effect in any case it's it's on youtube it's a good interview it's uh it's ostensibly about richard's book but you know jay knowing that i'm a big fan of his he, he had asked me ahead of time like what like if i had any questions for uh for for richie i hadn't read his book at the time i don't think it was available in the u.s yet i like all i could think of was to joke back at, at jay uh yeah ask him what's under the beret <laughs> That's good. He didn't. No, he didn't ask him. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that would be a, that would be a hard question. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I feel like that that could him. shut down an interview. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know what's on here. Yeah. Not much. <laughs> but, um, but, but, like, you know, he comes out on stage and he's wearing, like, you know, a denim vest with a back patch on it. And it's like, holy <laughs> shit, like, this, this could be... So he's, he's a couple years older than my dad. Mm-hmm. he's someone's grandfather yeah like 
yeah, this like if my dad was wearing a back patch and like a beret and kind of looking a little like Joe Strummer, mm-hmm. if you could imagine Joe like what Joe Strummer might dress like if he were around and out there today. Yeah. Pretty cool old guy. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it's like yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'll probably just kind of ease into the light color jeans and New Balance Monarchs. You know, See, like, I, I, I don't Nike think you, Monarchs. I, I don't yeah. think you will because that is not you know you'll you'll still probably be wearing like a striped shirt. It's just the striped <laughs> shirt will mean something different, right? Yeah, yeah. Like you, you know, I'll still be wearing my like Levi's five elevens, but like the kids will be not wearing Levi's 511s because it'll be what like old guys like me are wearing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think to some degree, we all stay what our idea of cool was when we were in our 20s. You know, if I look in the mirror, I'll probably still think like, yeah, still looking young. Who am I kidding? Like, we're, we're not, you know, we're, we're like washed up hardcore guys in our 30s. We're not, who are we fooling? Well, I think that though sometimes something about it, and this is maybe something I, uh, the trip I'm on now that I'm telling myself, I look shittier as I get older, <laughs> but I kind of look cooler because of it. Yeah, and that's that's great. I feel like kind of older people, and this is probably just me being older now. I feel like they kind of start looking cooler. I I think that you start owning yourself in a way that is inherently, and you know, again, you know, like. We're, you're preaching to the choir here for me my like i you know body type is a weird thing right yeah. where like i don't i am not sure that a baggy pant would look okay on me well you're a little taller so i think more so than you think well so i have what is referred to as hockey butt um <laughs> And that is, and you know, maybe maybe it's more just like my family, but like my thighs and butt are way bigger than someone that's as relatively skinny otherwise, um, like has any business being. <laughs> yeah, I got some Carhartt that makes, overalls. It makes pants weird. Yeah, I got some Carhartt overalls recently and I had to go like an another step up in size because mm-hmm. it was like, I mean, that's not really so much hockey butt as eating too much Taco Bell, really. But <laughs> but I was like, ooh. And then I actually had the same issue with like Dickies, where I wanted to kind of get back on the Dickies train because it used to yeah. be all I wore when I was in my early 20s. Sure. Um, and so I was like, well, if the kids are doing, I was doing that like OG, you yeah. know? And then it was yeah. like the size, for, the sizing to it, it's like if I'm a 32, that is not, you got to go to like 36s with with dickies like sizing is weird man like yeah like levi's sizing is is particularly weird um where somehow i'm a 30 but if you measure my waist i'm definitely not a 30 well how do we get back into what we're the thing um (laughs) i guess like the big part of it i don't know in all of this because we are talking about richard and linda thompson Mm -hmm. i feel like as little as i know about richard thompson I know way even less about Linda. Yeah, yeah. And there's, you know, she, she's definitely lived less, you know, a prolific life as an artist, as Richard. Like, I guess she was in the, the folk club scene before, you know, like, I know I've brought up the name Joe Boyd a couple of mm-hmm. times, the, uh, the management for, which if I can impart you with two of the best books that I've read, 
and I, I read a lot of music biographies, um, have been Richard's book, uh, which I was sad to finish. Really couldn't, couldn't recommend that higher. And I'm speaking mostly to you here. Um, and then the other one is, is Joe Boyd's autobiography called White Bicycles. So, you know, that's, there's a, do you know the band Tomorrow? Yeah. Like rock band. They did that song, White Bicycles. Uh, Steve Howe from Yes was in that before. Um, Joe Boyd produced that record, the Tomorrow record. Uh, and that was sort of, he was an American living in London at the height of the psychedelic era and the psychedelic come down. Um, you know, the first Pink Floyd singles, the Tomorrow record, uh, and then Fairport, Nick Drake, um, Incredible String Band, like the entire, basically what you would consider the bedrock of weirdo folk in England at the time, like Vashti Banyan, like Joe Boyd, that's his world. Um, I think he did those Doctor Strangely Strange records. Basically all of the like twee weirdos and then all of the stuff that actually had some emotional heft and gravity to it, like the Fairport stuff, Nick Drake stuff. He's, he's fucking everywhere, man. And like, it's, that book was an education. Richard's book was an education. Really just an incredible picture of a world that not a lot of people were documenting, apart yeah. from those guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I guess then, I guess kind of Linda just, kind of faded away in a no 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 she's she's still so she she was playing folk clubs um and i love her voice yeah it's it's hard to come from you know richard stuff with sandy denny to sandy denny of course being like for me one of the best singers to you know ever sing um so expressive but there's such a casual relatability and beauty to Linda's voice. Um, Sandy's stuff, a lot of it is like, you know, not double tracked, um, which is just for me, hard to imagine not double tracking your vocals. Yeah. Or triple tracking. Or, or quadruple <laughs> tracking, or in some, some of these songs on my second Gold Dust record, five or six tracks of. Yeah, who knows how many. Yeah, yeah, you know, you, you like, a lot of that is just like, Evidently, you know, Richard produced a couple of her solo records and would say, you know, like, go back in there and, you know, just do it with like a little more. And she would do it and it would just be like, you know, paint coming off the walls, like just raw emotion, like the sort of thing that like any vocalist would. I, I can't even imagine having that sort of that sort of talent. Um, Linda, I find to be a little more relatable in that she's a good singer. She's a great singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's there's like this sort of like, you know, lived in quality to it. This sort of like, you know, she, oh, she's worked at this. This isn't just like, a, you know, Sandy Denny born into a beautiful voice sort of thing. Yeah. This is like, you know, she's lived in these songs. She knows these songs and she's delivering them incredibly in a way that is like so fitting of the music where like you know you don't you don't listen to it and think like you know off the bat you don't think this is like Jimi hendrix level guitar playing Mm -hmm. but the more you listen to it the more you think like 
the more you realize like, oh, like this, this guy's on another level. Her, her as well. Um, I didn't like her vocals as much as Sandy's at first, but like she has definitely grown to be, you know, one of my favorite vocalists. Um, she's done, you know, she did a record after they split uh, without Richard being involved at all. And, you know, it was pretty good. Like it's, it's a good record. I think Joe Boyd produced that too. Yeah. Uh, one clear moment, I think is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it just, I guess, and I don't know like all the instruments she can play or whatnot, but it seems predominantly she's a singer. Yeah. So if she's a singer, one would assume that she's not, she may not know how to play an instrument like traditionally, you know? Right. Uh, and so. I think she plays guitar in the way that like a, a folk player in like a folk club would play a guitar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. um which is probably like me. not yeah <laughs> like me <laughs> um but you know she's done stuff since the the 2000s too yeah i've seen i've Richard. seen that now yeah, yeah. the just kind of labeled as thompson they've become friends again yeah which is is okay so the obvious kind of thing is uh so whenever they started Richard and Linda Thompson, were they actually married? So they started playing music together so that they could be together more. Okay. Because Richard was doing, um, he was in Sandy's touring band. He was in Ian Matthews touring band, which he was a singer with Fairport on the first two records. Um, you know, he, he was essentially for, for those like two years or whatever in between, um, in between Fairport and his solo stuff, he was essentially a hired gun. Yeah. So he had this thing where, where he said that he was, you know, he knew what it was like to work for someone and that his, like one of his drives in being the guy that the solo thing was, was around was he didn't want anyone that played with him to feel like he was working, that, that they were working for him yeah so like he he had this like this education there in between fairport where you know when you're in a band playing top of the pops when you're like 19 or whatever and then you feel washed up in your early 20s (laughs) well i mean i think like the equivalence not even actually equivalence isn't the right word but it it also brings to mind like early joe walsh it's like to think of Mm -hmm. like just how these people kind of had a career and then they were kind of used in places you were like, what? They played on that? But like, Funny you should of... mention Joe Walsh. Yeah. Do you the... know this bit of trivia? No, no. Do you know what I'm about to say? I don't think so. So Richard was asked, essentially, like softly asked to be a member of the Eagles. Somehow that doesn't surprise me. So he, I, I guess when Fairport toured, like they... Um, got to know Linda Ronstadt and of course the Eagles started as um, as the backing band for Linda Ronstadt um, when Richard was on tour I think with Sandy maybe with Ian Ian toured the U.S. more than Sandy I think might have been with Ian Matthews um, you know he was brought to to hear um, I think they were doing something in a in the same studio as the Eagles. Glenn Frey was like, "Hey man, like come check this out." Played him "Peaceful Easy Feeling," and essentially, like there, I guess their people asked his people um, 
to join the Eagles. Uh, he was asked to join the band, a later version of the band. Um, he was asked to join the Animals, like all these bands that he he said no to to being in that. Like, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, but I guess like thinking about something you said near the beginning is just like that thought of like if Grateful Dead's trip was to try and find out what the essence of American music is like Richard Thompson and this cast of characters mm -hmm. that was around him, their whole trip was finding out what the authentic, almost like what the authentic English music is. So it's like, while they seem like they're on similar trips, it's just, it's going to lead them to a much different place. Right. Well, which, which, you know, you think of another band that was on that trip on the English side of things was Pentangle. Mm -hmm. where you know i don't know if you spent much time with bert jantz or pentangle or john renburn or anything like that but that's another that's another path worth going down um pentangle uh played a, a couple of shows with the dead in i think 69 when they were over in california i guess they had a big influence from one of the books that i read on the dead uh on on jerry like he was super impressed by you know their attention to you know, traditional music, but bringing it to like a modern improvisational sort of place. Pentangle, their song, Willie Winsbury off Solomon Seal. Um, one of the songs off of, um, off of Bright Lights, Down Where the Drunkards Roll and the Pentangle song, Willie Winsbury, which is a, a traditional Scottish song. That was my introduction to the dulcimer, which I bought a dulcimer. Um, I, I bought it probably, uh, you know, like almost exactly a year ago, maybe. Um, I, I didn't know anything about it. I knew it was tuned to essentially play a drone D. Um, like it's tuned, it's a double string, single string, single string, with the, the low string being the farthest away from where you're playing. Um, the double string and the low string are both tuned to D, and then you have an A in the middle. So it's essentially a D chord. Um, I, yeah, I mean, those, those, I, I wrote songs thinking that I would integrate a dulcimer into it. And yeah, I, this record that I'm working on right now, second gold dust record is like not dulcimer heavy, but there's some dulcimer. Yeah. Like five songs on it of, of prominent dulcimer. <laughs> Wow. Which is, you know, like a weirdly, like it, it's, it's an American instrument. It's an mm -hmm. Appalachian instrument, but somehow found its home in England in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's, if you go to the kind of history of that, I, I feel like it's like, it's an American instrument, but it also kind of borrowed so heavily from like a, not British tradition, you know, an old country tradition. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, you, you think of similar instruments like the bazooki or whatever. I don't um, often. That was a Greek I know instrument. what you're talking about. <laughs> well, I, I, that, that's another thing I'm after is I'm probably going to buy a bazooki. And I don't know if I want to buy an Irish bazooki or a Greek bazooki. <laughs> but <laughs> this, is, this is great. This is great. Um, before we let you go, um, mm. I guess tell everyone what the new gold dust record is kind of like uh, we kind of talked about it a lot but i just kind of want to put a pin on it so make sure people check it out yeah, yeah yeah 
So it's a record that I decided to put out myself. It's um, it's so the it's all just me, and it's under the name Gold Dust, and uh, it's I, I have never done a self-titled record, so I figured it. You know, I already thought of one name, so let's just call yeah. it that. Gold Dust, Gold yeah. Dust, by Gold Dust. The song Black Sabbath off of the record Black Sabbath by the band Black Sabbath. Yeah, I love the album. I mean, I think it definitely like kind of kind of in the last year and the stuff that you were sending me, it kind of just reaffirmed to me that it's like, oh, I can really do whatever I want in terms of writing. Like, you know, those Oh yeah. You know, it's just kind of like it's actually helped me and I'm still like not writing as much as I would like, but just being like it's an exercise and it's an exploration, you know, and I felt that's a lot of what you well, did with the record that I really enjoyed. The Goldust record was absolutely an exercise. Like I didn't know how to like there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of finger picked guitar on it. I didn't know how to do that before, um, before COVID mm-hmm. and, you know, like bringing it back to Pentangle, I watched a lot of Bert Janch videos of how he would play. I'll never be as he's like the Hendrix of um, of acoustic guitar. I will never be Bert Janch, but you know you learn how to play Needle of Death and or like his cover of the Davy Graham song Angie. That's a pretty good bedrock. So I learned how to do a lot of that, and like a song like Run Into Clouds or whatever is fully like when I first started playing that, just fucking around on the couch or whatever. I thought like, hey, here's like this is the first song that I'm writing on acoustic guitar that sounds like I could play it unaccompanied and it could sound big. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the case, maybe not. Maybe it still sounds small and thin and whatever, but like, you you know, like finger, it opened this, this door. It's, it's, it's an exercise. Like I learned how to do a thing and I made a record. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, the nice thing about self-releasing it, too, is, like, who gives a shit, right? Like, I didn't run it by anyone. I just, like, you know, maybe it sucks. <laughs> yeah. And... Yeah, that's the thing that's been really <laughs> tough with, like, putting my own stuff together is just being, like, fine with the idea that it could suck. And that's kind of the joy of it. I mean, your album does not suck, I, you know, but... I, I think, like, having the having the thought that, like, you know what i'm doing maybe this sucks that's freeing yeah like it's freeing because like maybe you write a good song and maybe the rest of it sucks like well you still wrote that one good song yeah. <laughs> lb2's uh lb2 is more of the same i uh i'm about to send it off to justin to to mix and master uh and maybe it sucks yeah. but there's at least one good song yeah there. <laughs> i i, I I super appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And just before I let you go, where can people find you online? Um, well, uh, the Gold Dust stuff is on on Bandcamp, and that's probably where you should go. Uh, it's golddust.bandcamp.com, G-O-L-D-D-U-S-T mm-hmm. dot Bandcamp. I, amazingly, that wasn't taken. Um, uh, and otherwise, I don't know, like I post stupid shit on twitter and instagram and you're free to find me there um i mean once again just thank you for talking to me can't think of anything i'd rather do than talk about records that i love and other such bullshit
<laughs> I mean, I think we could probably speak so much longer because I've learned so much, but for the sake of my own sanity and editing, mm. I'm going to end it right now. Welcome back. Thanks again to Stephen for coming on the pod. It was great catching up. Check out the new Gold Dust LP and maybe stay tuned for another record later this year. Okay, next time on the pod, we're chatting with my new friend Mo Troper about Jellyfish's 1993 power pop classic, Spilt Milk, as well as what exactly is and isn't power pop. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash pod every week. My co-host Sarah and I, we talk about records we liked when we were younger. Please follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. (laughs) 